Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 20th of February 2022, 11 o'clock service. Stephen Kurt speaking in the series, King David, the good, the bad and the ugly. The father of a family and kingdom out of control. Right, well we are just a couple of sessions into a parenting course that we're running here at Christchurch. This is a parenting course for those with children of 10 and younger. And around about 17 people are coming each week, including me. And we're trying to reflect on this huge responsibility of being a parent and pick up in the process a few practical details about how to do it better. There are many responsibilities that can come our way in life, aren't there? But few are greater than being a parent. And the reason why being a parent is such a great responsibility is because of the simply enormous impact that parents have upon their children. Now, it might be most comfortable for us to tell ourselves that the biggest influence upon children today are their peers at school and the general culture. And of course, those things are really significant. But the biggest influence upon children is usually their parents. Sometimes that's through our example, and sometimes it's through the decisions that we take, both of which can impact heavily for good or bad upon our children. And if there's one parent in the Bible that particularly demonstrates this, it's King David. There are plenty of problematic fathers in the Bible, and there are quite a few problematic mothers as well. Not quite so many, but quite a few. But when we think about King David under this title of the good, the bad and the ugly, the theme of this series, there's no real better example of the ugly, really, than the impact that King David had upon his children. We've heard quite a bit about that already in the reading, haven't we? The impact David had upon his children, but also the impact that David had upon his kingdom. Because, you see, the two things were meant to go together. One of the most important passages about King David is 2 Samuel chapter 7. And that's part of it there. But basically, 2 Samuel chapter 7 is where God promises David that he will always have a son on the throne of Israel, that his dynasty will be eternal, that it will carry on ruling over Israel no matter what. And that was meant to be just as good news for Israel as for David. Now, in this Platinum Jubilee year, I won't dwell too much on contemporary monarchs and how they brought up their children. It's a little bit of a sore point, isn't it? Except to say that a vital connection does exist between a ruler's care for their kingdom and their care for the family that will one day take their place or potentially take their place. There is a connection between the two. And given this promise that God made to David about his family always ruling over Israel, you would have thought that it was pretty crucial that David was as good a parent as possible, wouldn't you? But actually, we see the very opposite. There's quite a history, actually, of strong leaders being disastrous fathers. We see it quite a lot through history. But really, David takes the biscuit. Because again and again, we see David with a family and, as a result, a kingdom completely out of control. 
And it really all starts off with that infamous episode that we looked at last week with Tim. Before that episode in 2 Samuel chapter 11 happened, the one with Bathsheba, David may well have been a mixture of the good, the bad, and the ugly, but what he did in that story with Bathsheba and then with her husband Uriah was very definitely ugly, wasn't it? And there's a crucial detail here which we mustn't miss. Uriah wasn't a native Israelite. He was a Hittite. Uriah the Hittite he was known as. But he was faithful to Israel's God, wasn't he? He was therefore just the sort of person that Israel's king should have been encouraging in his walk of faith. That's why Israel existed. They weren't meant to be a kingdom of priests. They were meant to so display what living under God looked like that the nations were drawn further towards God. And here was someone who was exactly the sort of person that Israel should have been encouraging, and particularly her king. But how do we see David treat Uriah? Well, he treats him appallingly, doesn't he? While Uriah is off fighting with the army, with Israel's army, David has sex with his wife. And then when she gets pregnant, he tries to cover it up. That fails because of Uriah's piety, because of Uriah's servant-heartedness. So what David does is to callously have him murdered. He's got the power to do it, and he does. And Uriah's just a Hittite, so what does it matter? Now, as Tim said when he preached on that passage last week, we don't hear anything of God in 2 Samuel chapter 11 until the final verse and it says this and it's really quite arresting because we read this chapter with all of the terrible stuff in it and then suddenly the last verse is particularly arresting because it's the first mention of God in the chapter but the thing David had done it says displeased the Lord and in the very next chapter 2 Samuel chapter 12 David learns from the prophet Nathan the consequences of his actions. And there are three basic consequences of David's actions which are outlined in that chapter. First, David is told the sword will never depart from your house. Secondly, David is told rather shockingly that as he took Bathsheba in secret, David is told that someone close to him will have sex with his wives in broad daylight. And thirdly, David is told that because he made the enemies of the Lord, in other words, the Gentiles, people like the Hittites, show utter contempt, the son born to him will die. In other words, because David has done precisely the opposite of what Israel was called to do, be a light to the Gentiles, the son born to David will die. So terrible consequences are outlined by the prophet Nathan in response to this terrible sin committed by David. And that's basically what we see over the next nine chapters of 2 Samuel. We're covering quite a lot of territory this morning, but that's because these passages, I think, need to be read on a broad level. We need to look for the big picture of what they're saying. And in these nine chapters, from 2 Samuel chapter 13 onwards to the end of the book in chapter 24, what we witness is the disintegration of David's family and much of his kingdom. So like I did a few weeks ago, we're going to do a whistle-stop tour 
of these chapters and what's contained within them. They're not always easy to find photographs of. When you do find photographs, they're not particularly suitable for displaying at church, so I've tried to get the right balance. So, chapter 13, what do we see in that chapter? Well, this was the one we have read to us, so you'll probably uh, remember the details already. But Amnon, who is David's oldest son, he falls in love with one of David's daughters, his half-sister, Tamar. They've got different mothers, but the same father. With the help of a rather dodgy figure called Yonadab, a rather shadowy figure, and by manipulating his father David, Amnon engineers a situation where he's able to rape Tamar. And David is furious about it. But he doesn't do anything about it. And after a couple of years, this leads to another of David's sons, Tamar's brother Absalom, murdering Amnon. So it's horrific. It's terrible. That's chapter 13. We've had that read already. What about the ones that we didn't have read? 2 Samuel chapter 14. Well, Absalom, having murdered his brother Amnon, he goes into exile for three years. David eventually gets over the loss of Amnon. He's consoled regarding Amnon, we're told, and he pines for Absalom. He misses him. And then David is once again manipulated. This time by his army commander, Joab, who uses a wise woman to come and talk to David and to sort of trick him, really, into allowing Absalom to return and be restored by David. That's chapter 14. What happens in chapter 15 to Samuel chapter 15? Well, Absalom, by presenting himself as someone who will bring greater justice to Israel than David did, he leads a rebellion. And it's serious enough to force David to flee from Jerusalem. There's Absalom. I think we've got another picture there as well. And there is David fleeing from Jerusalem. And a lot of David's followers, they desert. They go over to Absalom, to his son. And one of these is David's key advisor, Ahithophel. And uh, so David prays to God that God will turn Ahithophel's counsel to Absalom into foolishness. Okay, what happens after that? Chapters 16 to 17. Well, as David flees from Jerusalem, he's helped by a man called Ziba, but he's also cursed, and you can see it in the picture there, by a man called Shimei, one of the family of Saul. After that, Absalom arrives in Jerusalem. It's just as well there's not a picture for this next bit, because he follows Ahithophel's advice of having sex with David's secondary wives, his concubines, in a tent on the palace roof to demonstrate that he is in control. You'd think there are other ways of demonstrating you're in control of a kingdom rather than doing that, but that was uh, the chosen path. But after that, Absalom is deceived into not following Ahithophel's advice on how best to defeat David. So that's chapters 16 and 17. On to chapter 18. Absalom's army is defeated by David and defeated Despite David's orders to his troops to spare Absalom, well, Absalom does come to grief. First of all, his long hair. Absalom has this long hair, and it causes him to get caught in the branches of a tree. And while he's stuck in that tree, he gets killed by Joab, who throws javelins into him. They look more like arrows in that picture. But we're told he had three javelins thrown into him. Chapter 19. David returns to Jerusalem where he is full of grief for his son Absalom. 
until he's rebuked by Joab, his army commander, for caring more about those who hate him than those who love him. David spares Shimei, he's the one who cursed him, and he also allows Absalom's commander, Amasa, to remain in charge of the army in place of Joab. But there's division at that point between the people of Israel and the people of Judah about their respective roles in reinstating David. Then we get chapter 20. Another rebellion breaks out, this time led by a man called Sheba, who tells the people of Israel that they have no share in David. Joab takes advantage of Sheba's rebellion to murder Amasa and to take back control of the army. And Sheba, the one who led the rebellion, ends up being defeated and killed. Then on to 2 Samuel 21. A famine takes place. It lasts three years. David learns that it takes place when he consults God because of his predecessor Saul's massacre of a tribe called the Gibeonites that Israel was meant to have a covenant with. So David asks the Gibeonites what they want, and they ask for the bodies, well, they ask for seven of Saul's descendants so that they can kill them and expose their bodies. Now David agrees with that. He goes along with it. But the mother of those whose bodies have been exposed, she desperately tries to cover their bodies to keep them from disgrace, and that prompts David to make sure that they're properly buried, along with the bones of Saul and Jonathan, and at that point the famine ends. And then we get chapters 22 and 23, and these are a little bit different because chapter 22 is a song or a psalm written by David, and chapter 23 is an account in part of David's last words. And the words of both the song and David's last words, they praise God for his deliverance, and they include within it uh, praise for God protecting those who are righteous through the covenant that he made with David. Rather mysterious when we consider everything else going on, that David praises God for protecting the righteous and basically making sure that the wicked get what's coming to them. And then chapter 24, the final chapter of the book of 2 Samuel. God's angry with Israel, and so he incites David to sin by taking a military census of all of his fighting men. Why that's a sin is not totally clear, but it appears to encapsulate some sort of arrogance on David's part. And the consequences for Israel once again are terrible. But then David pleads to God that his hand would fall on David and his family instead of Israel. And God listens. And in the place where God restrains his angel, at the point where God does that, is a place in Jerusalem where there's a threshing floor belonging to a Jebusite, a non-Israelite. And David buys that site and he builds an altar on that site in the place that eventually becomes the temple. Okay, a lot of content there. You might be thinking, well, that's all very fascinating, Vicar, but what can this catalogue of savagery and mayhem possibly have to say to us today? Well, I think actually, if we have the time to read those accounts and ponder them and reflect on them and pray on them, I think it has a vast amount to speak to us. It's not necessarily pleasant, it's not necessarily comfortable, in fact, it's thoroughly uncomfortable, but I think it has much to speak to us. For three reasons, the first of which is this. 
David's life, I believe, shows very clearly and actually very helpfully the multiple ways that sin works itself out in human lives. Now, we mustn't go too far. David in these chapters isn't all bad. He's still capable of showing reverence for God. He's still capable of showing repentance or contrition when he realises that he's done wrong. Normally it has to be fairly obvious, but he does repent on those occasions. He's capable of showing mercy to those people who might have expected vengeance from him. So what we see in these chapters is that the man after God's own heart is at significant points still able to reflect something of God's character. But at the same time, the David that we see in these chapters is beset by weakness. He's completely unable to control his sons and is increasingly unable to control his kingdom. The David that we see in these chapters is easily manipulated by figures like Yonadab and Joab. The David that we see in these chapters is partial to some while being harsh to others and both approaches result in problems. The David that we see in these chapters is muddled in his priorities. He frequently fails to consult God and then pays the consequences, as do others. Now, reading all of this material is hard work. Not just hard work because it's long, it's hard work because it's distasteful and it's unpleasant and it's savage and it's horrible, really. But we are given the Bible that God intends us to have. And we're given this material, I believe, to make us ponder and reflect upon the nature of David's sin and to ponder and reflect upon its impact, upon its impact both upon David and upon those around him. And what it helps us to see, and I think this is really helpful, is that sin, in other words, falling short of God's perfect will for our lives, Sin isn't just about those consciously bad choices that we take. It also manifests itself in weakness, confusion, and muddle. Those things that so often characterise our lives. The fact that we often just don't do life very well. As much through our weakness as through our sometimes wickedness. You see, we can try and kid ourselves that we're in control of our lives... A lot of our society tries to get us to, you know, behave as though we can control our lives. But we can't. Like David, we're not able to control our lives. And that's because, like David, sin has spoiled and distorted that perfect dependence upon God that we were created to have. Some of the things that David does in these chapters are straightforwardly bad. They're straightforwardly wicked. Uh, The David and Bathsheba episode is perhaps the most obvious example of it. But in many cases, the things that display David's sin in the chapters that follow are simply because of his weakness. The weakness and the muddle that comes through being infected with this disease that we call sin. But both of these things, both the things that David consciously and deliberately does wrong and the things that are just the outcome of his fallen, weak, corrupt nature, both of them lead us on to a second crucial point 
coming out of these stories, and a very reassuring one, and it's this. David's life, as well as showing all that stuff about sin that we've thought about, David's life shows the multiple ways that God's grace keeps working in human lives. The story of David is one that shows that God never gives up, never gives up on working his purposes, no matter what a mess is caused by human sin. And David's story is really, I think, preceded by the story of Saul to make this point really clear. You see, as soon as Saul, David's predecessor as king, showed weakness and disobedience on really quite a minor level compared to David, it was basically over for Saul in terms of God's use of him. And that part of the story is basically, I think, there to show what it could be like if God's grace didn't exist. But from David onwards, we see something quite different. From David onwards, we see something different in God's rock-solid commitment to David, which means that when David sins, there may be terrible consequences. There always are terrible consequences. Terrible things happen, but God, because of his rock-solid commitment to David, is always working to bring some redemption into the mess, into the mayhem that has ensued. Now, sometimes this involves David's repentance. Sometimes this involves David recognising that he's messed up and making a right response to God. Now, that's shown really when David prays to God to frustrate Ahithophel's advice during Absalom's rebellion, and that prayer is answered. It's shown also when David shows repentance or contrition about ordering the census. We see it in a few places. But actually, God's grace coming is more about God than anything good to do with David. More often, it's not really got really anything to do with David's virtue. It's because of God's virtue. It's because God finds ways of bringing his redemption through the mayhem caused by the muddle and the weakness, as well as the deliberate sin of God's anointed king, David. Now, I believe that the encouragement to us from this is actually massive. It's a massive encouragement to us as Christians. Because we, like King David, are completely messed up by sin. Sometimes this results in deliberately bad things that we've done, but more often it results in us simply being weak, us simply being fearful, muddled, easily manipulated and compromised. Now, like King David, we're capable, particularly when we get into trouble, of throwing up the odd desperate prayer in God's direction, expressing a bit of repentance when disasters occur in particular. But it's God's strength, rather than anything to do with us, that's the vital factor in bringing redemption. And thank God that it is, because if it was down to us summoning enough virtue to make it happen, we haven't really got it there, have we? But it depends on God not on us. God had a rock-solid commitment to David, 2 Samuel chapter 7. God has a rock-solid commitment to us, expressed in our baptism. That's the point where we were anointed by God. David is anointed by God, but we too are anointed by God. That means God's got a rock-solid commitment to us. 
He has a rock-solid commitment to his baptised people, to those who belong to him. And that means, thank God, that he never gives up on us. He never gives up on finding new paths for his redemption to take place. And that is a really important message, particularly if we've got to uh, about my age or beyond, where most of our life is behind us rather than ahead of us. The reason why midlife crises take place, particularly amongst men, but not always just men, sometimes women as well, is I think when people can't handle that truth, when they really struggle that more of their life is now behind them than in front of them. And very often it's disastrous when people refuse to sort of accept that and try and turn the clock back and start acting as if their major choices are still ahead of them. It's a really crucial message for lots of us here because most of us here have most of our life now behind us rather than in front of us, including me. But the God of redemption helps us to handle that really well because there are no disasters in our lives. There are no disasters whether caused by deliberate sin or by muddle, fear, confusion, manipulation, whatever, there are no disasters in our past lives that God cannot redeem, that God cannot work to bring good out of. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't bear the consequences of that sin. The story of David shows that only too well. All of David's wrong actions, whether they're caused by deliberate sin or muddle, confusion, manipulation, whatever, they have consequences. But what we see in these stories is that God is forever bringing unforeseen acts of grace out of the wreckage that David makes of his life and therefore, by implication, out of the wreckage that we can often make of our lives as well. And that is a crucial encouragement to us. It means there's nothing in our past whether we look back and think of things that we were part of doing very consciously, which we now desperately wish we hadn't been, or whether they were things caused by muddle, confusion, fear, whatever, there is nothing at all in our past lives that God cannot work to redeem. Not because he scrubs it, not because he just cancels it out as though it never happened, not because God cancels out the consequences of that. Very often they stay with us but because God is a God of redemption. God can work amazingly to bring opportunities for his grace to work out of the most awful and damaging parts of our lives. Now, I haven't got time to particularly unpack that, but when we think about it, there are plenty of possible explanations of that. So someone who's made terrible mistakes... Uh, is quite often a lot wiser in the advice and the guidance that they can pass on to others. People who've made real damage in their lives sometimes are people who will avoid hasty judgments about uh, the mistakes that other people might make. It can give an extra level of sensitivity and thoughtfulness. They can sometimes be really good at giving advice to their grandchildren or whoever it might be. God is a God of redemption. 
And that means that whatever the biggest disasters that have happened in our lives and whatever cause those disasters might have, God is always able to bring his redemption. He's always able to bring about surprising acts of grace out of the most disastrous and awful situations. And that links to the third point of these stories. David's life, I believe, shows the multiple ways in which God was preparing to send Jesus. You see, when we read these stories carefully, when we slow down and really give them the time they need, we see that again and again they point to Jesus. You see, God tells David after his sin with Bathsheba that because of this, his son will die. The son of David will die because of that sin. And after he recognises his sin over the census, David asks that God's hand, God's hand will fall on him and his family rather than coming upon Israel. Absalom, the son of David, receives God's curse from Deuteronomy through being hung on a tree. Do you notice the echoes in these stories of the story of Jesus, the foreshadowing of them? All of these parts of the story have an immediate fulfilment in the story of David, but they also point ahead to Jesus, the perfect son of David, who was born in David's town of Bethlehem because of another census, wasn't he? And he came to die on another tree so that the sin of the world could be dealt with. And it was the death of Jesus that enabled that residual guilt within the Davidic line over David's treatment of that faithful Gentile, Uriah the Hittite, the very person who represented the people that Israel was meant to be leading to God, who had been so callously disposed of, Jesus dying as the son of David enables that residual guilt within the Davidic family to finally be atoned for, meaning that the Gentiles can then pour into God's people because that barrier has been removed. It's not just being a parent that brings responsibility and some of us here are parents, some of us aren't. There are all sorts of ways in which we have responsibility in life. We hold responsibility for our own lives, and all of us have responsibility for the way in which our lives impact upon those of others. And it's really sobering for us to read these stories of King David and see how King David's sin impacted not just upon his family, but upon an entire kingdom. But these savage and tragic Bible stories aren't just about human failure. They're about supremely the grace of God, who because of his son, Jesus Christ, never gives up, as I said earlier, on finding ways to bring about redemption to the very worst of our failures. Now, we very definitely help that process when we repent, when we're contrite, but fortunately, it doesn't totally hang on those things, the quality of our repentance, the quality of our contrition. It's just as well that it doesn't. It rests upon the grace of God. We help that process when we're repentant, when we're contrite, but God's grace is never ending. That passage where David in 2 Samuel 22 praises God for his protection and talks about the way that he protects the righteous 
and slays the wicked, it can look quite problematic when we first read it because we can think, come on, David, who are you trying to kid? Are you really trying to say that you're righteous and uh, in that category rather than the wicked category when we see all this weakness and awfulness in the chapters around? Well, maybe, and maybe David was a little bit misguided on one level when he spoke those words, but in another sense he wasn't. If David was referring to the righteous status that followers of God are given through belonging to him, supremely through his son, Jesus Christ. When we belong to Jesus Christ and when we're baptised, we're made part of what is true of Jesus becomes true of us. We are given that status of being righteous in the sight of God. And it's what's given to us from God, that gift of righteousness that is the crucial thing, rather than anything inherent that we already possess. It's what Martin Luther called God's alien righteousness, what God gives to cover us, a status that we possess because of him. And at the basis of this is that we worship a God of grace. And thank God that we do. Because we can look back over our lives and we can see moments that we're proud of and moments that we're delighted with and we can look at other parts and we can shake our heads and shudder at the disasters that we've been part of for many reasons. Sometimes through deliberate sin, sometimes simply through weakness, muddle, confusion and so on. But God is a God of grace. God is a compassionate forgiving and redeeming God who can take the worst shipwreck in our lives and bring wonderful acts of grace. And the reason why he can do that is because of his commitment to sending that perfect son of David, Jesus Christ, for every single one of us. We're going to turn now to prayer. Let's pray. <clears throat>